the most important part for me about a new CISO is that they recognize that that job can change at any point in time. You may have to be a marketing person for a little while. You may have to be someone that sells the quality of your product to a new venture capital firm. The list really goes on and on, but ultimately CISOs are asked to do whatever is necessary using your skill set, which is security. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Jarek Beeson, CISO at Epic Global, about leaving a position with a guaranteed path to the top for a new role, how to approach personal brand building with an eye on the future, and the importance of a CMDB audit early on in your role as the new CISO. How do you know when it's the right time to leave a job, especially when you're being groomed for something more senior? Is there a formula for making these choices? How could it impact your future career? And once you've made the move, what tools can you leverage early on for the highest impact? Jarek, thank you so much for being on the show today. For the uninitiated, please, if you would, introduce yourself and tell us uh, who do you work with? Jarek Beeson, and I am the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Epic, a legal services organization. Before we get into Epic, which I think is, a, is an interesting story. I want to dig a little deeper into pre-epic Jarek. That kind of rhymes. One of my favorite questions is, what advice would you have given your younger self in your career earlier on? Is there anything, any moment, pivotal moment that sticks with you where you wish you had done something or not done something or done something sooner? Yeah, I would have spent more time on relationships. For the most part, I had solid relationships. I had people's phone numbers. I had a Rolodex, if you will. But I didn't do enough to maintain and foster those relationships after I left. I've since made up for some of that on LinkedIn. But there were a number of people that I was fairly close to. And after I left those organizations and moved on to my next gig, I focused heavily on the new organization and the people there. And I didn't necessarily spend as much time on those past relationships. And now I'm seeing a lot of those people thriving. Some of those people may even be opportunities to come into my organization. And it's a little awkward reaching out to someone seven years later, eight years later, instead of just doing some basic check-ins every once in a while. There's been a couple different themes that have kind of popped into the show. And this is one of them, the relationship management earlier in the career. And you are not the first person to bring this up. And I, I find that kind of fascinating. And we can all look back and wish we had managed it differently, uh, managed the relationships. You know, one of the things I struggled with is maybe some today would say I'm still a bit heavy handed, certainly was very assertive earlier in my career. I was kind of the one that was the, hey, there's a problem. Go, go unstick this issue, right? Go, go kick open that door. There's a price to be paid for that. You can rub a lot of people the wrong way. So that was one. And then the other is just not, not staying in touch. So do you have a recommendation for those that haven't done this, this sort of management of relationships? You mentioned LinkedIn, but I mean, 
how do you keep track of all these connections that you've had in your career? Like what's been your approach? What's been successful? What didn't work? I would say everything that I did up until three years ago, don't do. So what I've done most recently is I've been very intentional about responding to people's job changes and reaching out to people and just giving them a, a little bit of an update on where I am, learning a little bit more about where they are. You know, it's a little known fact that in cybersecurity, it's more about who you know than what you know when it comes to getting a job. But now with this competitive market trying to recruit people, it's also more about who you know than what you know, because people, it's a a buyer's market at this point. So anything that you can do to endear yourself or make yourself known uh, is definitely a value add. It's hard when you move on, you know, security is, is often a thankless job and you need to work on the relationships for your day job. So sometimes it's kind of hard to reach back into the past and maintain if, you know, there's sort of whatever's present presented in front of you is kind of the important thing of the day. And I completely agree though, you know, keeping relationships going and, and focusing on those key people that helped you along the way, I think is important as well. I think back to some of the, the great folks that, that have helped me in my career. You know, there was a, a gentleman I just popped into my mind when I said that, uh, Dave Sims, who is uh, still at my former employer, early days of me kind of starting a, a new position, he was pivotal in giving advice and, and did it without any attachment. He just wanted to see me succeed. And uh, we've stayed in touch, but maybe not as close as we, uh, we should have. So I don't know if he's listening or not. I don't know if he even listens to the podcast, but think back to the people that have helped you build out a program or build your career and, and reach out. And if nothing else, tell them thanks, I think is my advice. I don't know if you've got any other thoughts on that, or I'm sure you do. Any other points on that topic? Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually have recently reached out to some people that were instrumental early on in my career. Everyone in security was given a chance. None of us knew security when we started security. Right. And, and the fact that someone gave you a chance, saw something in you, you, know, you made something of it. it it's definitely, uh, it's awesome to hear when someone reaches back out to you. I've had people reach back out to me and say, thank you for being my mentor. Didn't even know I was their mentor, right? <laughs> it's right. awesome to hear that. But one of the things that I would also tell myself is don't spend so much time trying to network at the top. I have tried to focus on the CISOs and the leaders because that's where I wanted to get to. And they say, model yourself after the people or the roles or, and so forth. But now I have a network full of CISOs across every industry. But when I'm trying to hire a, a junior analyst, I have no one to pull from. And that's, that's changed more recently. But that was a challenge that I, I saw myself trying to overcome as I'm trying to build a new team. Well, hold on. Break that down for me for a second, because I think we need some context in terms of timing, because you're, today's Jarek is not yesterday's Jarek, right? And so from a managing relationships is the advice for you know, somebody who was a, an analyst or is an analyst today, who do they need to network with? And somebody who's a CISO today, who do they need to network with? Like help maybe define that scope of where should they be reaching out and how and to whom? Because there's a time thing here. You know, we're in our time machine and we're jumping back and forth. So what is yesterday's Jarek? Who should he have been networking with or maintaining relationships with? Let's start there. So yesterday's Jarek, going back to when I was a consultant, I was trying to sell services. I was trying to get my foot in the door and the people that do so and that allow you to do so are the leaders. So I wanted to network with those leaders, not thinking three years down the line, four years down the line where I would be in my career. 
it's, it's important to network with people that are where you want to be, but it's also to reach down and pull other people up at the same time. And it, it's important for a few reasons. Number one, I want to set up peers that I can reach out to and bounce some things off of. I'm going to need that to be my peer group. But then eventually I'm going to need to build a team. I'm going to need to recruit a team or I'm going to need someone that's far more technical than me. As you ascend in your career, like it or not, your technical skills are going to dwindle and you're going to be heavily dependent upon those around you that can, that can deliver from a technical perspective. And those are usually the people that are junior to you. So it's important to really realize across industry, across any level of hierarchy, that we're all in this. And it's important to keep that in mind when thinking about who you want to communicate in contact with. And also mentor when you have an opportunity to. We all have a, have a duty, in my opinion, to build the next generation of cyber warriors. And that's one of the small ways you can do so. So here's another question I'd like to ask. What do you think younger Jarek wasted the most time on? How would you avoid that? You know, if you're given advice to a mentee, you think back of what you spent your time doing and what was fruitful and what was not. What was young Jarek doing that he was wasting his time on he shouldn't have been? Chasing a lot of certifications. Ah, really? Why is that bad, Jarek? Come on now. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, wants, everyone wants a bunch of certif- certs and stuff. Why, why is it bad to chase those? I thought the acronyms after my name would validate me. I thought that it would mean that I know my stuff. Mm. I didn't think that three years later, those certifications would be irrelevant. You know, if you got an MCSC in Microsoft 2000, you were the man. <laughs> if you haven't gotten every single one after that, then you are antiquated and dusty, right? So I think I would be a little bit more deliberate about the certifications that I go after. All of my specific tool certifications are rendered moot at this point. That is something that I know I spent a lot of time on. So now that you're in a spot where maybe the certification is less popular or less necessary, are there any certs today that might surprise me or the listener that you still hold valuable if you see them in the hands of maybe a junior or a mid-level hire or maybe even senior? It all depends on the role that people are going after. The CISSP is the one that people talk about all the time. Unless someone's going after a management level role, to me, they've they focused in an area that's really not going to be applicable to them in the immediate uh, future. So that's similar to me in getting certs that weren't necessary. Uh, the certs that are, are most valuable to me are the certs that are really IT focused more so than security. To me, if you don't truly understand IT and networking, you can never secure it. So I find the CCNA as an example, a valuable cert. Though it's a Cisco cert, it is applicable across all networking. It translates to the cloud, it translates on-premise. Juniper, you name it. And that is, that is one that I definitely have found to be a value. I personally like to focus more on just what, what's the skill base, what skills do they have? And one of those being automation or the desire to automate things has always been really key for me. But if they're in a more technical perspective and trying to understand how machines become compromised, I'm a big fan of the offensive security crew and the OSCP and sort of the suite of certs because it's applied, you know, they, they let you VPN into a network and you have to compromise it and move laterally and sort of behave like a, a real adversary might, which I think is, it's a very difficult cert. And I have no, I don't get like a dollar for mentioning them or anything. They're, <laughs> I think they're incredibly relevant and, and good. But yeah, I think certs are kind of less important. I let my PMP expire. I think knowing how to run a project is a very good skill, but I didn't find it necessary to kind of try to renew that. I actually owe ISC squared money. I just got an email on that yesterday. So I, I'll, <laughs> I will renew that just because um, I feel like I have to uh, for some reason. But the other thing I want to bring up before we get ahead of ourselves is 
you might be the smoothest sounding guest that I've ever had and probably smoother than even I do, which is pretty smooth. You have a podcast and that's probably why I want to bring that up because I think it, it's an intro into one of your goals with your current employer to kind of getting out and, and getting the message, I would say, of trust out. What's the name of your, your show and tell us why you started it and it's kind of in conjunction with your employer. What's, what's all of that? Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's called Epic Cyberside Chats. It's a play on the fireside chats that FDR did back in the day. The goal here really is to talk about cybersecurity in the legal industry. Cybersecurity is talked about in a lot of other industries. The legal industry is really not one of them, and they play a pivotal role. And we really want to speak to legal professionals, general counsels. Anybody can listen and anybody can you know, gain value from it, but it's spoken at a higher level. It's not meant for the very technical. Uh, it's meant for the layman. And uh, so far, we're about seven episodes in, and uh, it's just going pretty well. I'm enjoying it. And the goal for doing this as, a, as my organization is really to get the name out. Epic had a, a bad day last year, as many companies did. From a ransomware perspective, I'd say a little bit of trust was lost. We ultimately are aiming to be the leader in the legal services space from a cybersecurity perspective. And to me, you can't be a leader unless you're contributing to the industry as well. And that's what the podcast is looking to do. I think that's a very good point. And, you know, I applaud your employer and you for allowing you to take a very forward facing approach to the problem. And I think that, you know, giving you the time and the resources to do this, you know, some organizations have a breach, they have a problem and they clam up and they go quiet. And discussions and information can only go through specific channels. And I think that's the wrong way to go. You, you need to control the message, but I think you need to also, the more we're open about our problems, that's the, the only way we're going to get better. And so I applaud your entire organization for having that. And I wanted, knowing your mission, it's one of the reasons why I want to call it out for those that might be interested. And I, I didn't want to leave that out at all. I appreciate that. Thank you for not making me shamelessly plug my own show. Yeah, no, I didn't want you to have to, to crowbar that in there. But I, I do think this leads us to our next topic. You were at one point at your prior employer and you were faced with a new opportunity, which is the opportunity that you're in right now. You were the, if I'm understanding it correctly, the deputy CISO in your prior role. Is that accurate? That is correct. If you could... Walk us through that scenario. And the reason why I want us to walk through it is for the listener, for the person who might be the deputy CISO, who is probably getting groomed to take over. I know a little bit about your story, but I'm going to let you tell it. But there's a point where you have to make a decision, right? The market's hot. We got different elements of opportunity. What was the scenario and then how did you make your decision? What was the trigger that moved you one way or the other? And this is really to benefit the listener if they're in that similar kind of spot. So take us back to that point, if you would. Yeah, so, so you're correct. I was being groomed to be the CISO. The current CISO and I had a prior relationship back from my consulting days. And the current CISO was promoted to CIO. It was during COVID, so there was a short window of time where no real movement was going to be made on titles but it was presumed that I was going to be the CISO of this company. And this is a Fortune 500 company, fairly large, $20 billion in revenue. So not, not a small company by any means. 
And when I was getting ready to get offered the job and the package was getting ready to be prepared, my current company, Epic, came knocking, offered me a similar position. The compensation was comparable, but what really lured me in was that we did have a bad day. There was a ransomware attack, and this was going to be a complete rebuild. And what I had to think about was one, this is a rare opportunity. At the time, it was <laughs> the companies getting hit by ransomware to come in and, and change the culture and the landscape and, and really leapfrog the maturity. But more so than that, and me and my wife, we've talked about this a number of times, what is my brand? What do I want to be known for as a CISO? And throughout my entire career, I've been transformational. I, I like to come into places and leave them better than when I got there. And I had spent already three years at the previous company. We had made a large amount of changes. I had established a strategy. I was actually over IT architecture at the time as well. So I was over IT architecture and security, which is an interesting combination. So my fingerprints were all over where that organization was going. And this was a, a brand new shiny toy that I got to play with. And I had the opportunity to say I came in post-attack, things weren't looking good. And now here we are, a world-class organization and the leader in our industry. And not very many CISOs get an opportunity to say that. And I wanted to take my shot. But I want to be a little bit of the contrarian here for this. That was a, a well-laid-out response, and, I, and it makes complete sense. But I think there's something rare in this mix that needs called out. I don't know. So you mentioned, we don't need to say the name, but it's a big company. I can count on one hand how many times I know that a CISO gets moved to CIO. And typically, the CISO reports to the CIO, which I personally don't agree with or like, but that's another issue. There's a long list of things I don't like that go beyond this show. But in this example, your guy that you've known is moving up. You're going to move up. People typically leave when they don't have enough cooperation. And if he's your guy, like you're going to have enough cooperation because he's had your job. So while I appreciate, and I think you made the right move, I think the situation you were in was pretty rare as well. Do you agree to that or no? <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. It's a lady, by the way, but not only- uh, Oh, apologies. Sorry. All good. She may listen. I want to make sure she, she knows she's, rec she's recognized. But uh, Sorry, is she still the CIO? She is still the CIO. What's her name? Sarah Urbanowitz. Sarah, I'm, I apologize. You are rare. Again, I can count on one hand. So moving from CISO to CIO. And uh, it sounds like Jarek still cares greatly about you and probably misses working with you. But my apologies there. But yeah, let's, you've, you've given her credit on this. So you, you have her confidence and you still left. It was not an easy decision, but she, actually, <laughs> she helped me make the decision. Yeah. I came and I said, I am so torn. I have an opportunity of a lifetime and not necessarily monetarily, but just the situation that I would be moving into. Or I have this ship, which is going to be smooth sailing. And I know we can do, do great things. And we collectively agreed. My, me and my wife, we spoke. We collectively agreed. This was the path of most resistance, but also the path of most growth. Of most growth. And I'd never worked for any company other than Fortune 500. In consulting, I was in the largest consulting company in security in the world. When I worked in the product space, I worked in the largest product security company. When I worked for the government, I worked for Lockheed Martin. 
So I've always worked for really large organizations and I've dealt with the the monolithic ways that those organizations operate. I learned how to play <laughs> right. with the politics and to navigate that. I've never worn multiple hats like I would coming to, you know, a startup organization. So that was the one thing I had never tried as well. And when I think of my career 10 years from now, I want to say I've done all these different things and I know for sure this is the area that I fit best in. And I, I never tried that startup space. So when I combined all those things together, it was decision that I that I decided to go with. And I'm, I'm happy I have. We've done some amazing things. And I still talk back with my previous company and they are just as, as happy for me as well. No, that's, that's fantastic. I, I do want to talk a little bit about how really your boss and sounds like maybe even mentor, what was the discussion? How did it go to, with Sarah when you're saying, hey, I'm torn, I don't know what to do, which is kind of a crazy thing, crazy and crazy good, I guess, to ask, to say, hey, hey, boss, hey, boss, I'm not sure I'm torn. I still want to work with you, but I might want to work someplace else. How did she, what was her sort of decision tree for you? Because I think that's an important thing to share. And sorry to get a little too personal, but these are the kinds of things that aren't shared enough. And maybe somebody doesn't have this type of opportunity, but if they get a bit of this knowledge here, it may change their direction or, or be comforting to them in their point of if indecision. You know, the conversation wasn't, wasn't really long. It, it was maybe 10 to 15 minutes. One of the things, you know, was, you know, are you running to something or, or running from something? And it was clearly running, running to something as I laid out the opportunity as it presented itself. And she pretty much said that she would be okay if, if I left because part of it was there was an agreement. It wasn't a written contract. It wasn't, you know, a covenant or anything along those lines. But it was, it was well known. People in the organization knew. It was a pretty much a surprise to everybody when I decided to make the move. So she said, hey, you know what? I'm never going to stand in the way of, of an opportunity. I, I don't want you to feel guilty for it in any way, shape, or form. And you're going to look back on this and, and wish you would have done it if you don't do it. She made me feel more at ease. She said, hey, I'm happy that you got us to this point. If you would have said this a year ago, I think I'd had a different stance, but you've gotten us through COVID and all the security things that we needed to figure out there and our IT architecturally uh, as well. And, you know, you've set us on a trajectory. All we have to do is continue riding this rocket ship that you already put us on. And that put me at ease. It, it made it easier for me. My decision wasn't 100% made, but it was pretty made at the point. And it wasn't a matter of, can we offer you more money? It wasn't, you know, can we offer you more incentives? Because it, it wasn't about that. It was about opportunity of a, of a lifetime and an opportunity to truly challenge myself in a way that I've never been challenged. You mentioned earlier something that, that I, I don't think gets covered enough, and it may seem a little bit vain, but I believe it to be important. You spoke with your wife and had the discussion, and probably with other people, of what is your brand? A close friend of mine recently left his employer and is now the deputy CISO at a, at a very large company. And one of the things we talked about in sort of the preparation is just that. What, what's your brand? What logos are associated with you? What are sort of the, the optics? What's your CV look like around all these things, right? And, and that's important, especially what I'll call mid-career. What did you walk through 
What I mean, you've talked a little bit about that, and, and you wanted to go to a startup and a smaller company, and you've been with larger. You said monolithic was the word you used. What did you want with your brand with a with a smaller startup? And if you were to finish the sentence, you know, the the opposite of monolithic is what in terms of the startup that you went to? You're making me think hard on this one. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted my brand to be someone that can pull you out the mud, someone that can take a rather dire situation and turn it around and do so fairly quickly with the right resources and support. I wanted to be able to prove that any scenario I was put in, that I would find a way to make my organization better. Success as a CISO is really difficult to define, but ultimately, if we've moved the needle to the right, I'm successful. And the further left that needle is when you get there, the farther you can move it you know, to the right because of those things. So that's what I wanted. I wanted people, when I look back on my career, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, to be able to say, I didn't, I didn't take the easy way. I took the ways that challenged me. I took the ways that would have greater impact on the world. I guess I'm altruistic in that regards. And I guess from a monolithic perspective, you know, there's slow and very process-oriented, a lot of governance when you look at the large organizations, in theory at least, (laughs) and startups that I've seen, they're more agile, they're quicker to move, and you're going to wear more hats. And I I was looking forward to that. So Epic has a problem in January. This leads to your onboarding. Headhunter reaches out, and you know now you're you've been in the the position for for a little while now. You picked this position for many reasons, but one of them had to have been the kind of the tailwinds associated with the breach, right? You have a in an event that happens that leads to increased interest and cooperation. How do you make best use of that? Because that will fade over time. Right? There's, a, there's a desire to make something better. And then, especially with security, in some cases, the interest begins to fade. So how did you capitalize on that early on? And then I want to get into how are you capitalizing it and keeping the sort of inertia today. But let's start with what you do when you jumped in. Well, when I first jumped in, my goal was to truly understand the organization. I understood that there was an attack, how it happened. I could figure that out from my IT guys, my security guys pretty easily, pretty quickly. But I really wanted to understand how does the organization work? What makes it tick? What are our margins? What are the things that impact our margins? What are the things that we're looking to do? What are our growth opportunities? I wanted to really understand the business side of it, which took people back a little bit. Uh, I was the first CISO at this organization. I believe that the first CISO's job is also to teach the organization what a CISO is supposed to be. We, we had a security leader, but we didn't have a, a CISO. So I would say the beginning part of my tenure was really spent just educating on, on what a CISO is and, and how a CISO operates, specifically myself. In doing that, I, I started to build trust. And trust is core to everything that I do. I've said it before, it's a currency of sorts in, in many ways. And it's not easy to build, and, but it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to lose. So we, we really spent time as a team rebuilding trust within the business, changing from, you know, the, the office of no to the office of yes, if. I always believe there's a path to if. It's just a matter of how you're going to get there. 
Do you have to add a control? Do you have to accept a risk? Do you have to hire people? Whatever it may be. And just doing things like that helped ingratiate ourselves to the organization and to the business. And it gave us the foundation we needed to execute our strategy. We developed a strategy and ultimately that strategy, it could be the best strategy in the world. And it won't be successful if you don't have the trust of the organization and the leadership to execute it. The last time we spoke, we talked a fair amount about trust. And I'm not sure that you have yet, I mean, I have the idea, but I don't know that you've defined it. You did mention that you thought your first job was to explain what a CISO is because they really didn't have it before. And so what does that mean to the sort of the culture and the operation of the company? But there's more to that than than just explanation. So your goal for them to trust you, how do you know if they trust you yet? And what was your sort of what are the things that you did specifically to sort of foster that? If you can name a couple of things, again, for those that are listening that are saying, gosh, I don't know if they trust me or not, or I don't know where to start, or I'm, or I'm, I'm a new CISO too. Like, what'd you do? Yeah. So kind of as alluded to, my first job as a leader was to establish trust relationships with my peers, the board, our partners, and even our customers. And uh, in business, trust is really a combination of character and competence in finding opportunities to demonstrate both. And, you know, if you look at a lot of leadership failures, it's oftentimes a failure of one of those two things. And so it's really just an unspoken foundation in my strategy. I I would say that to demonstrate trust is to completely demonstrate that my goal is to help the organization succeed. I'm not coming in to change things. I'm not coming in to slow things down. Asking questions like, how can I help you with this? Or questions they had never heard before. That's not what a security person said. A security person said, why are you doing this? And no, you can't do this. Or this is too much of a risk to do. And that it wasn't the approach that I took. It was, what are you trying to do? How can I be of value? At the end of the day, I have a C on my title. And just like anyone else with a C on my title, my ultimate goal is to grow the business, sustain existing clients, gain new clients. And I just use my skill set to do that. And as I demonstrated that and I showed that on a consistent basis, I ask questions like, can I have a conversation with our, with our customers? Give me the top 10 customers that weren't happy with us after the attack, and let's get some time on the calendar to speak with them. That's just not what they experienced in the past, and it showed them that there was a paradigm shift and that things would be different. So you talked earlier about how to kind of make sure that there was, that you captured the cooperation and the energy behind breach response, incident response. I think the point you just made of you know, talking to the top 10 angry clients, I think that's really interesting. One of the things I've had to personally do is, is sort of this client management side gig that happens when you have a breach or a big problem. And I think the record I had is I had our, our thousand largest customers on a call once, and I was sort of third in charge on the call, which was last in charge is really what that means. And it's interesting the kinds of questions they ask, and it's also interesting how angry they can actually be. But I think the advice that you gave of proactively asking, you know, probably the sales or client customer management team, I think that's really wise. And anyone who's listening needs to have that in their back pocket. That's the first piece. The next piece I'd like you to describe, which is, okay, let's see if you get actually what you asked for. Let's give Jarek the top 10 pissed off customers and let's schedule that call and watch them roll up their sleeves. 
How were those meetings? How did you structure that call? Was there anybody else on the call with you? How did you manage the tone of the call? Uh, Help us there. The first thing I do on the calls is I give a little bit of my background just to establish a little bit of credibility. The logos on my resume, they mean something. And after that, first thing I said was say, is there anything that you want to know that you haven't heard that you didn't get from us? Because I want to make sure that throughout this conversation, I answer those questions at the very least. I have some slides that I've prepared and we can walk through those. But ultimately, I want, I want to know that you leave this conversation getting the answers and hopefully having the confidence in us that, that we believe you should have. And then after that, I open up the kimono. I say, here is exactly how the attack happened. Here is what happened on the very first day on patient zero. Here is how they spread. Here is how we caught them. And here is what we uh, did to completely close out the incident. But more importantly, for all those different aspects of how the attack happened, here are the countermeasures that we now have in place that we did not have. Here is how we would have caught them if we would have had this technology that we did now have. Here is how this new managed services that we brought in would have caught these things a lot earlier. Here is how this would have made the data that they got unvaluable and so forth to just show them how we had responded. But then more so than that, letting them know this isn't purely something that we're doing right now. Here is our strategy for the future, right? There's a three-phase strategy and everything I told you was phase one of the strategy. Phase two of the strategy is this. And that was important. Number one, it showed them that we weren't just responding to an attack but that we're truly making good on our commitment to being a world-class security organization. But also, it now puts my entire organization on the hook to execute that strategy that I just told our top customers, which happened to also be the largest portion of our revenue. So that's that's an extremely good point. And you said it puts your organization on the hook. It puts the whole company on the hook, which I I think is important to go through these phases. And you, you said something else that's really important you broke down into phases and articulated that there's phase one is just the response. Phase one is where probably the first meeting spends most of the time on talking about the ins and outs of the problem and countermeasures. But the fact that you are sharing this four-phase plan, well, I don't know how many years that encompasses, but it's probably multiple years, that transparency I've found is exceptionally good for adding in additional comfort of everyone because you're sort of socializing it. It sort of becomes fact. A lot of times a three-year, a four-year plan is just a nice to have. There's a lot of BS in there. There's a lot of nice to have. There's a lot of questionable funding. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, well, we're not sure we have all the help or cooperation. All that flies out the window when you start sharing that plan to your clients. I think that's really wise. I think finding organizations that allow you to do that, for those of you that are out looking for work, that's the place you want to be. So I, I like to give my commentary on this. I'm proud of the fact that you're in a spot where you can deliver that kind of message. Is there anything that you would add or any type of behaviors if you were giving advice to another CISO that you would add, right? You you came up with this formula, but not everyone has this formula. Maybe no one's had a breach. Maybe they haven't had a breach yet, but they're concerned about it. How much of this can they borrow and implement into their pre-breach organization? How would you recommend those do that, Jarek? Yeah, so nothing that we're doing is meant to be secretive 
And honestly, it's not that special. The strategy is is three-phased. The first phase is foundation. Foundation are those top 20 controls. I think it's now down to 18. And it's all the things that prevent the majority of attacks or that mitigate the majority of attacks. Phase two for us is now we're going to actually start playing with the more cutting edge technologies and architectures. And we can actually build on top of a foundation. If you don't have asset management, if you don't have identity management, you can't, you shouldn't spend your time looking at all these automations and and all of the machine learnings and all the things that can, you know, help move the needle a little bit to the right. You should really focus on the basics or the fundamentals first. And that's where we spend time. And we had the fundamentals already in progress when I got there, but we accelerated it and we found tools to uh, exacerbate in a positive way some of those some of those things. But ultimately, I'm looking at zero trust. I'm looking at XDR. I'm looking at all of those other types of things that you really can't do without those fundamentals. So start off with the basics. Once you get the basics in place, all those random vendor calls that you get, all those random emails that you get from vendors, you can now start entertaining some of those because now those are the icing on the cake that can help target different areas. And ultimately, reach back. Reach back to people. Be transparent. I think one of our problems in this industry is that we're not transparent. So we're all forced to try to figure out how to protect ourselves. We use the IOTs that are provided and the threat intel that's provided to us. But ultimately, I want to know exactly how did you get hit? I want to make sure that that can't happen to me. And not enough people are doing that. Well, I think also, so a couple things. One, people are quick to share an indicator of compromise or some sort of atomic indicator but they're not willing to share the story, which is sort of the human narrative of how the, the problem happened. They, won't, they typically don't exclu- uh, disclose that for a variety of reasons, most of them wrong. So we need to get better at that. This sort of slow intelligence is what I refer to it as of, you know, it takes time to sort of create what ultimately is the timeline of the attack. And typically we don't have that unless we've brought in somebody who can either build it or we have capabilities that create it. But we need to share the timeline of what is the story behind the attack? I don't think we do that well enough as an industry. The other thing that I have kind of, I guess, beef with a little bit, I see CISOs all over the world that are responsible for protecting something that they have an incomplete picture of. Specifically, you look at the CIS controls and you know the first two. I don't think a CISO should be responsible. Maybe you've got a differing opinion on this, which would be great. I don't think they should be responsible for asset lists, meaning IT typically needs to know what are the assets on the network, and they need to do that exceptionally well. And only once you, ha- once you have that, then you can begin managing things like patching and protection and collection of visibility and logs and these sorts of things. But I go in a lot of environments where no one is holding IT accountable for the fact that they don't even know what they have, but yet then the security team is sort of left holding the bag. Do you have a, an opinion or a perspective on that? Boy, do I. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. CMDB, I joke and say it's a four-letter word in most companies. We are constantly trying to add and enrich and make the CMDB complete. And as a consultant, as a professional services person, I think I may have seen one or two organizations that really have their CMDB, CMDB where it needed to be. So yeah, that's, that's the first thing. I can't protect what I don't know about. I can't give you stats or statistics or anything. Because I'm not 100% sure that my endpoint agent is on every system because I don't know every system that's out there. Or I find out about a system when something occurs, which is, you know, the worst case scenario. So that was actually a topical area on the strategy was to get a better understanding. And there are 
ways, in my opinion, that are fairly archaic to do so. There are spreadsheets that people have, and you're trying to bring all that information together. There's discovery scans, which are never successful because there's always at least one firewall blocking that discovery scan. There are agents, and they just help based off of agent health. And those agents are only going to cover devices that can take an agent, not your appliances and so forth. Um, so we actually found a technology, and I don't want to plug any tool today, but we found a technology that actually allows us to get visibility across all of our systems without an agent, without a scan. And then we just pull in all of the source data from every system and it just correlates it. It says, we see a device that is inside of your endpoint tool, but it's not inside of AD. We see a device that is in your, your VMware uh, stack, but it's not inside of your vulnerability scanner. And we're able to start to piece together the puzzle and not only find the devices that may have been missed for various reasons, but also get to the root of why those devices weren't there. So we've, we've closed our inventory gaps dramatically. And I would say that I'm pretty confident that I know about 99% of our, of our devices, which was huge for me. Yeah, that's very few people would give that 99% mark. And it's just one of these sort of things I see that's a systemic issue where the CISO signs up to, hey, yeah, I'm going to own all this. And yet whoever actually owns CMDB or assets or even knowing, you know, basic fundamental information, they're never going to get audited or they're not going to get fired for failing at this. But the CISO might. And it's just one of these things where we own too much pain. I want to take us back. Last time we spoke, we, we spent a fair amount of time on trust. And you've seemed to really hang a lot of your, your professional sort of credibility around it, which is great. One of the things I think that is important is sort of sharing information on on trust. Uh, and are there any resources, books in particular, I think we talked about, of any that stand out in your mind you would recommend on just the concept uh, on the sort of the currency of trust? Anything come to mind that you would recommend to the listener? First and foremost, The Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey is, is definitely a book that I've read a few different times. There's also a book called The Code of Trust, another one called The Courage to Trust, and Mastering the Four Essential Trusts. Those are the various books on trust. When I set my mind on learning more about trust and what experts have to say on it. Those were the, the books that I picked up and, and read. I think Speed of Trust, I've not read all of those, but Speed of Trust is fantastic. I love the concept. High trust environments are frictionless and involve less sort of pain and, and we can get decisions uh, made more quickly and projects finish more quickly. It's a, a con concept that I think we uh, need more of, especially in security. Yeah. We've covered a lot today and we're about out of time, but there's a, a question that uh, I ask everyone, and it's kind of our closeout. Pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, Jarek, what does being a new CISO mean to you? The new CISO is different for every industry, different for every scenario. If you're a new CISO coming in after, after an attack, you're going to have a completely different job than one that's taking over for someone that is retiring and did a fairly good job or someone that's moving on to, to the next opportunity. You have to have business acumen. You have to be able to speak the lingo, speak the language. You have to have a seat at the table and actually add value, even if it's not specifically for security. At the same time, the, the new CISO understands the security fundamentals. They understand the basics. They can have a conversation all levels of their, of their organization. And the most important part for me about a new CISO is that they recognize that that job can change at any point in time. You may have to be a marketing person for a little while. You may have to be someone that sells the quality of your product 
to a new venture capital firm. The list really goes on and on, but ultimately CISOs are asked to do whatever is necessary using your skill set, which is security. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you so much for that answer. No problem. Thank you for having me. This was fun the second time around. (laughs) Absolutely. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.